When we speak of the gospel, when we speak of the evangelical gospel, we're basically saying that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God's Son, came to earth, took on real human flesh, obeyed all of God's laws, died, was buried, was resurrected, and ascended back to the right hand of the Father. He now rules over the world. One day He will return for His church. But in the meantime, the lost, those who are yet stuck in their sins, those who are yet rebellious against God, have the opportunity for forgiveness. Jesus obeyed the laws that we do not obey. He did not die because He broke any of them. Rather, He died to take our place. He took the suffering that we should have suffered. He died the death that we should have died. But death could not hold Him. He was resurrected. So, our punishment has been paid for. Our debt has been paid. And because of Jesus' resurrection, which we will talk about next week in particular, we can walk in newness of life anticipating the finality of our salvation, the the final resurrection where we can live forever with Him. I think sometimes whenever we speak of gospel-centered churches, gospel-centered marriages, gospel-centered work ethic and all other things like this, we can lose sight of what the gospel itself actually is. The gospel is that the Son of God suffered, died, was buried, and resurrected on our behalf. And if we will place our faith in Him, He will remove from us our sin and give us His righteousness. This is the gospel. There is no one who is exempt for the need for the gospel. We all need the gospel. Those who embrace Jesus in faith will live eternally. Those who do not embrace Jesus by faith will be punished eternally. We do not say this with any sort of pleasure. We say this because it's horrifically true, and yet there is opportunity for rescue, for redemption. And as we kick off this week of prayer during Holy Week, It is fitting for us to focus in particular on the crucifixion, the suffering of Jesus, and to see how not only He saves us from the penalty of sin, from the certain death that we deserve because of our sin, but how this connects to everyday life. So, we want to clarify again what the gospel is, to understand why it is that Jesus suffered, but to see the implications of that for everyday life. Psalm 22 does that for us. In fact, there are few passages in all of Scripture that clarify for us the importance of the gospel for our redemption to be rescued from sin, as well as demonstrating for us the implications of the gospel for everyday life. Psalm 22 does that for us. So, the basic message of Psalm 22, this Psalm of David, is that Jesus suffered for us. He did this, as we will see, for our salvation, and He did it for our joy in the midst of a yet incredibly difficult world. So, together today, we want to consider the crucifixion of Jesus and the implications it holds for our salvation. 
and the past and the present and for the future. This psalm really has two layers that blend together. The first layer that we will see, I think, relatively quickly is that there are clear redemptive themes in this psalm. That is to say, close to a thousand years before Jesus was born, David prophetically spoke of the suffering son that would come from him. We know that the Messiah would be the son of David. And prophetically, his great, 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 great grandfather speaks of the suffering Messiah who would come. That's the first layer. The Messiah would come to suffer for the salvation of his people. This is in keeping with God's redemptive plan. We've been seeing this throughout Genesis. The first two humans that lived, that fell into sin, clearly needed redemption. And God came along and promised them that it would come, that it would come through a son, a son of the woman. We have made it all the way through Genesis chapter 26, and we have not yet found that son to have come. You get to the time of David, the great king of Israel. The son has not yet come, for David had many flaws. In fact, his son, Solomon, who in many ways would expand the borders of the kingdom and lift it to heights of glory, had never known he would not be the promised son, for Solomon himself fell into great sin and abandoned his confidence in God. And it wouldn't be Solomon's son. For Solomon's son was a disaster, and the kingdom was split in two and was never the same. David prophetically speaks in this passage not only of his own sufferings, but of the seed that would come, the one that had been promised. And for millennia, God's people awaited the the keeping of the promises. But David speaks here of his own sufferings and his confidence in the God who promised redemption. And this demonstrates for us not only that that Jesus came to suffer for us, but he came to suffer so that we can trust him in our suffering. And we will see that as we go through this passage today. Whether we like it or not, this world is, is chock full of suffering. We don't like that. We can, we can feel it in our bones. You know what it's like whenever you go visit your grandpa, and your grandpa's like, this is a little bit cliche, but let's just go with me. Your, your grandpa's sitting on his front porch in his rocking chair, and he's smoking his pipe, and he's wearing his old tweed sweater, and you're sitting there, like, gazing out at the field. My grandparents actually did live like this. And <clears throat> you're talking about the old days, and kind of out of the blue, after pausing for a while, he says, rain's coming. And you look out, and you don't see anything. You see sunshine, and you say, how do you know, Grandpa? And he says, I can feel it in my knees. And you say, well, what do you mean, Grandpa? And he says, whenever rain's coming, I can feel it in my knees. And sure enough, like three hours later, a deluge comes. He can feel it in his bones. He's old enough and has had enough injuries that somehow his, his very knees become like a barometer of the weather. Suffering's like that. We can, we can feel it in our bones. There's something about this world that's just not right. There's an ache 
And when you're in the midst of suffering, you can point it out, you can, you can speak of it, but often it's just sort of a, a subtle intuition that, that things aren't right here. As Christians, we know this. The Bible, as we will see in just a bit, clarifies that for us. The Bible clarifies for us that this world is not right, and we know why. It's because of sin. But the rest of the world knows too. Even those who have not yet embraced Jesus as their only means of salvation, the rest of the world knows this. They try to mitigate it with all kinds of means, psychological intervention, religious invention, pursuing wealth to try to insulate ourselves from the ache of pain and suffering, relationships, seeking to put people around us perhaps that at least for a time can help us to forget how disappointing this world can often be. But the problem is often those relationships become the very means whereby we suffer. And so suffering is all around us. And, and though there are many happy days for us, yet we know that suffering is real. Our church in particular has had a, a long and sustained and very painful season of suffering. It seems like when we think we're out of it, it's, it's more. There's more right around the corner, and, and our bones ache with the awareness that it's there. And, and even if we find ourselves perhaps in days to come and God willing in a season of peace and solitude, more is coming. But if the Scriptures clarify anything for us, it's that this suffering world will only be fixed will only be remedied through suffering. In fact, the very first promise that redemption would come has a ring, has a, has a clarifying note of suffering in it. When God comes to Adam and Eve and promises them that redemption would come, He says that the Redeemer will suffer. That is to say, the only way that the suffering can be undone is that the Redeemer and correspondingly, His people suffer. So, ironically, suffering will only be undone by suffering. And David, like all who would come before him and all who would come after him, including you and me, understand that suffering will one day come to an end, but not until we suffer a lot. And the psalm that we read together a bit ago clarifies that for us. And David opens with those words in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Do you ever wish you could, have, you could have been with the writers of Scripture when they were writing these things down to try to get a feel of what their tone was like? What was David like when he wrote this? As you read the entire psalm, which is relatively lengthy, it's, it's basically comprehensive. And we've already read it, so I'm not giving anything away, but he goes from agony at the beginning to elation or joy at the end. So, so David's reflective. He would have had to have had plenty of time to gone through a cycle of suffering and then to joy again. And yet, what was the circumstance that, that brought about these words? 
And we don't know in particular. Occasionally when David would write a psalm, he would tell us when he wrote it and why he wrote it. We don't know here. But we do know that at many times David's life was marked by suffering. His first marriage was a disaster. Later on in ensuing marriages, they weren't any better in many ways. David became an adulterer and a murderer. David's own son rose up against him in a coup, trying to take over the kingdom. Eventually, that son died, was murdered, really, by David's military chief. David's own son, though David did not live to see all of this, who became king, started off well but ended horribly. And we like to talk about David slaying the giant, killing bears and lions and such. We like to think of David, the shepherd boy who played the harp, who was strong, who was powerful, who trusted God, who was much more righteous than Saul the king who he replaced. And yet throughout David's life, there's lots of bad. And whether it's caused by his own sin or by the general sin of the world around him, David, David had a difficult life. David needed redemption. And he cries out in the first couple of verses of this psalm, God, you seem so far from me. David needed salvation just like you and me. Though we don't know when exactly this happened, we know that David himself was justified by faith. That is to say, David was a sinner who needed redemption. And the only one who could redeem him is the son who would come from him. And because God had given promises that redemption would come, God's people, when they trusted those promises, when they believed God, God accounted their faith as righteousness. That is to say, He gave them righteousness and took away their sin. Not because they were righteous, because they were not. But because one would come, one would suffer for the unrighteous, and God proactively credited the righteousness that Jesus had, who would come many years later, to the one who believed. Jesus got their sin, and they got Jesus' righteousness. It's a raw deal. David needed reconciliation to come back to God, he who was an enemy of God. But David suffered anyway. David suffered even post-redemption. I I think sometimes people believe that, you know, once you come to Jesus that everything's going to be okay. In fact, I think sometimes that's what a lot of people in the world who have not embraced Christianity think that we're selling. That somehow we're walking around like a bunch of rubes, and, and we believe somehow that if you'll just embrace a few little doctrines here and pray a few little prayers and wear a couple talismans on your wrists or on your neck, that Jesus is going to make everything better, that our marriages are perfect, that our kids are all cleaned up and they're really great and we never have any needs and everything's really great. Often, though, it seems to be the case that that we who have trusted Jesus for our righteousness, who, who would trust Him to take away the punishment of our sin, often it seems like we suffer more. David's life seems to be somewhat of a prototype for that, and therefore 
Psalm 22 is helpful for us. So, I want to look at this psalm in sort of two layers today. The first layer is this. Jesus suffered to fulfill God's plan of redemption. That's why He suffered. We can be pardoned and live forever. Why do we talk about this from this psalm? Well, we talk about this from this psalm because the New Testament does. In particular, Matthew chapter 27 and four different verses in that text takes up for us this psalm and gives us a lens through which we can look back at this psalm, which again was written nearly a thousand years before Jesus actually came to the earth and died. And so, because the New Testament itself, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes this psalm and helps us to see that the death of Jesus was prophesied for us, we can look at Psalm 22 and see the sufferings of Jesus. And the message for us is that Jesus suffered to fulfill God's plan of redemption. This was, this was foretold and fulfilled. And the beauty of this, the wonder of this, the message for us is that we can be pardoned and live forever. So, turn with me, please, to Matthew 27. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus eats the Last Supper with His disciples. Jesus prays in the garden. Jesus is arrested by the religious authorities, not because He'd really done anything wrong, but because they hated Him. He stood against everything they stood for. And so, in Matthew chapter 27, He's given over to the Roman authorities who alone had the authority to deliver one over for death because they were the political rulers of the day. The people, along with the religious leaders, are, are whipped up into a frenzy calling for His death, and, and Pilate hands Him over, and Jesus is crucified. And beginning in verse 32 down through verse 54, we won't take time to read all these verses, this entire text, but you will see some similar themes that we have already read together in Psalm 22. As they went out, Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Well, we've already seen that in Psalm 22. David says that his enemies divide his garments. In verse 18 of Psalm 22, David says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus fulfills David's prophetic words. Verse 36 of Psalm 22, And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. We have seen this as well in Psalm 22. David's enemies wag their heads against him because they mock him. They hate him. Verse 40 of Matthew chapter 27. 
And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he who saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him, let God deliver him now. David says this as well in Psalm 22. David's enemies said this about David's God. Will, will David's God save him? Jesus answers the prophecies. Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land and until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as we just read together, the beginning of Psalm 22, these words were on the lips of David the king. This same psalm demonstrates to us David's prophetic words that there would come one, not just David himself, but there would come one who would more greatly, more fully bring to pass all the words of this psalm. What we're saying is very simply, as you look at the crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew 27 as well as in the other Gospels, that Jesus suffered on our behalf in the very ways that David prophetically said He would. This psalm tells us that, that David himself felt pierced by his enemies. Jesus would be pierced. This psalm tells us that that David's enemies were standing against him in derision. Jesus' enemies were standing against him, mocking him, even going to the point to to make him feel like nothing by, by taking his clothing and bartering them off. The one who thirsted is foretold in Psalm 22, 14. Jesus was poured out like water. His bones were out of joint. His heart was like wax. Verse 15 of Psalm 22, his very strength was dried up like a potsherd. He could not carry his own cross. His own tongue stuck to his jaws. He thirsted on the cross. In verse 16 of Psalm 22, much like David felt his enemies surround him in derision, Jesus' enemies surrounded him, watching him die in agony, the one whose hands and feet, Psalm twenty-two sixteen, were pierced, holding him to the cross. Did David understand all that he wrote? Probably not. David, for the most part, speaks from his own experience. David was never nailed to a cross, spilling his blood. David was never held on high while his enemies surrounded him, mocking him. And yet, David's experience prophetically foretells what the greater son would be like. David himself was not the son who would come and redeem his people. But eventually one would. And he literally would be pierced. 
He literally would have no strength. He literally would be mocked as his enemies surrounded him. He literally would have his clothes divided by his enemies. He literally would cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though the piercing was agonizing and the thirst was real and the pain and shame of having one's enemies surround him, those that he came to save, those that he created, though that was shameful, the greatest suffering of the Son of God was that God His Father, from whom He had never been separated from all of eternity, had to turn His back on His Son. And for the first time in all of history, and for the last, the Son of God was abandoned. For those of us who have suffered the loss of relationships or have been or have had kind of relationships where we just did not feel safe. We know what that feels like. We know what it feels like to be forsaken. But the Son of God had never known that. We know that because of sin. Sin separates, even to the point where our relationships become very disappointing. Jesus never knew that. Jesus had perfect communion with the Father. In fact, creation itself is sort of an outpouring of what God had done through the Son. And what I mean by that is the Father had always loved the Son. And it kind of makes sense that they would create something so that they could share that love with others, so they would be known as the loving creators and adored as such. So creation sort of logical. Not necessary, but logical. If God is full of love and God the Father loves the Son and always has, in fact, that clarifies their relationship. There's a father and a son, they are one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They love each other relationally, and therefore they created a world where they would love relationally. But the perfect son had never known anything but perfect relationship to the Father. And for the first time in all of human history, and again for the last, he was separated from the Father. And Jesus cries out in Matthew chapter 27, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is not as though Jesus did not know that it was coming. But in His perfect humanity, it demonstrates for us the agony and depth of His suffering on our behalf. And I can try to explain it to you from lots of different angles, but I will close with this thought as we wrap this idea up. Because of your sin, you were separated from God. But in an effort to bring you back to God, the Son was willing to face separation. Themes of adoption ring clear to us in this text. We were fatherless. In fact, we were the enemies of a father. And yet the perfect Son of the Father came and temporarily became an orphan so that we would no longer have to be orphans. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2, David felt like an orphan, but the only way that David could go from orphanhood to sonship is if his great-great-great-grandson would temporarily become an orphan on his behalf to bring him back to God.
And so, Psalm 22 proclaims to us that Jesus suffered to fulfill God's plan of redemption. This is what the Father and Son had planned. And Psalm 22 just gives us one more further insight as the Old Testament unfolds to us the hope of redemption through David's pen, that redemption is coming, but it will only come through suffering. Redemption is not the path of glory. Redemption always comes along the path of suffering. And the wonder of the gospel is that the Son of God was willing to suffer to bring about redemption. Because of this, you and I can be pardoned and live forever. As I've already said to you, I don't say this with any sort of delight. In fact, I hate talking about this. I hate that part of my job is talking about condemnation. I hate that I have to talk about about punishment. But I would be a coward if I did not. And the reality is, David would have suffered eternal torment if the Son of God did not come and temporarily become an orphan and take David's sin so that David could once again become a son. And the same is true for you and me. If you do not bow in submission to Jesus, if you do not place your faith in Him, not just believing certain things about Him, but abandoning yourself over to Him as your only resource for life, you will suffer not just in this life, but eternally. But I say to you with confidence, and the beautiful message of Scripture that nearly a thousand years before these things came to pass, they were prophesied, and they came to pass perfectly well. I say to you that God intended redemption, and it was going to happen because God the Son agreed to come and keep covenant with His Father and bring us back to the Father. If you have not yet embraced Jesus by faith, my friend, let today be the day where you turn from self-righteousness and turn to God. By all accounts, as you look back through religious history, David would be one of the heroes. If you had like a deck of cards of like all the religious heroes, David would be one of the ones you wanted. But David was not righteous in and of himself. David needed redemption. And I did, and you did, and some of you do. So turn to Jesus in faith, the one who suffered to fulfill God's plan of redemption. You, like I, can be pardoned from your sin and the punishment that you deserve, and you can live forever. And so, as we celebrate Holy Week, that's what it's about. Jesus came to fix it. Jesus came to rescue sinners. But there's something further in this text, and it's really important for us to see. Jesus suffered not only to give us pardon, Jesus suffered so that He could minister to us. We can trust Him in the midst of our own suffering. And contextually, this is really what the psalm's about. There are all kinds of dimensions of prophecy in this text. 
that one would come and be pierced, that he would thirst in the midst of his piercing, that his enemies would stand around him and mock him, that they would divide his clothing. There's prophetic elements in this text to be sure. But David didn't see all of that. He didn't understand all of that, even though he wrote under inspiration from God. If you would have been with David as he wrote this down and asked him, why did you write this? He would say, because I suffer. And he would say, why do you speak with with such angst in this text? And he would say, because I suffered truly and really. But because we know that ultimately this text finds fulfillment in Jesus' death, we see in this text a connection between Jesus' death and not only our pardon from sin, but also that this one who did suffer for us can can meet with us in our sufferings. The text moves like that. David opens up by saying, you seem to be so far from me. And yes, Jesus would say that on the cross many hundreds of years later, but, but David felt like that. For being honest, a lot of us do from time to time. We pray, sometimes out loud, yelling, where are you? I seem to be doing the right things. I try to keep your rules, and in all honesty, not perfectly, but I try. I try to lead a good life. I, I, I try to, to raise my kids to love you, and yet I, I suffer so much. Why is that? David doesn't park there, though. He moves on. This psalm demonstrates to us, as I said earlier, a cycle of faith. So he suffers, but then in verses 3 to 5, he remembers that God has always taken care of His people. But he comes back in verse 6 and verse 7, and he says, but my enemies mock me. They see my suffering, and that intensifies my suffering. But then in verse 9, he returns to this idea. God, you've always taken care of your people, verses 3 through 5, but you've taken care of me. You've always taken care of me. But then he goes back as he works through the cycle of suffering, and he says, and yet again, I, I really do suffer. And these enemies who are all around me, they make it worse. This is true in our lives. There are truly those in our lives who are for us, but not many, if we're being honest. Most of us can probably not count more than a couple hands' worth of people who have, who have really stood with us in the midst of suffering. We would do well to learn from that in a church family like this, to be the kind of people who have eyes to see those who suffer and, and come around them. I've watched you do that in months recently grateful for that. We still have a long way to go. But very often there are people around us who actually intensify our suffering. And even if you've never faced this, many of our brothers and sisters around the world face this today. On April 12th, when Patrice and Naomi shared their story with us of their experiences in Pakistan suffering for their faith, you'll hear it. 
you'll hear of the cost that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are paying this very day for their faith. Where their enemies don't just despise their doctrine, but their enemies want them to die. I won't ruin Patris's story because it's really compelling and striking, but you'll be amazed if you are a naive American like me at what people today are facing. We, we can look back at the Roman Colosseum and Christians being torn apart by lions or evil emperors striking down Christians. You can look back at that and say, oh, it used to be so bad. But there are more martyrs this very day for Jesus than there has ever been in human history. That's true. Jesus suffered for our redemption, for our pardon, but Jesus suffered to minister to His people. I think sometimes we, we personify God's enemy, in particular I mean Satan. We personify Him in sort of a quaint way. Like God's perfectly good and holy, but Satan's kind of like this, this invisible bully. He's really bad. He's angry. But I, I don't think we really have much of a notion of, of how wicked he is. Satan does not just sort of dislike you. Satan hates God with an equal fury that God loves with. And what I mean by that is, if God is perfectly loving, if He's marked by, by a force of love that compels Him to pour out His grace on the earth, Satan conversely is marked by, by fury that manifests itself by seeking to destroy the earth. If God is perfect love, Satan is perfect malevolence. And very often he will use those who are his followers, whether they know they are or not, to bring about his malevolent, evil, wicked schemes. Jesus would face this. And one way or another, the Roman officials and the Jewish religious leaders who drove Jesus to the cross were agents of Satan, wicked, malevolent tools of the evil one to crucify the Son of God. Now, God ironically used their wicked fury to bring about redemption. God, God turned their plans on their heads. But those of us who suffer often suffer because those around us intensify the suffering. And sometimes, as I've already sort of hinted at, it's hard for us to feel that in an insulated society like this. But some of you have. You need not live in Syria today to, to face what it looks like to have someone despise you and use you. Some of you have been through that, and you know what it's like for Satan to use people to make your suffering far worse. But your Savior's aware of this, and David, as he works through the cycle of faith, does not end with suffering and those who make the suffering more acute and worse. Because in verse 22, 
things change. The cycle of faith takes an upswing. David understands what it looks like to come out of suffering, to praise God after he is delivered. In verse 25, he praises God in the midst of the congregation. David wants to tell everybody about the deliverance that comes from God. Those who were formerly afflicted, Psalm 22, verse 26, will eat and be satisfied. The cycle ends. And eventually, beginning in verse 27, there will come a day when there will be no more suffering, and the righteous will live in perfect peace in God's kingdom for forever. So, this psalm goes from agony and a fight for faith to an upswing of joy, and that's our lives. Agony, fight for faith, deliverance. Agony, fight for faith, deliverance. The beauty of the end of this psalm is that it won't always be like this. Eventually, full deliverance will come. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. The one who was pierced, the one who was mocked, the one who thirsted on the cross, the one who cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One day that one who was mocked and despised and rejected, he will return. And all the nations will praise Him, and all those who have trusted in Him will dwell in peace and security. How do we know this? Because verse 29 tells us, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. We will be with Him. Suffering will end. We can have confidence that God will show faithfulness to us and to our children because verse 30 tells us, posterity, children shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it. David moved through the cycle of suffering, looking to the one who alone could ease his suffering with a prophetic eye toward final redemption. And so we ourselves await it in the midst of our suffering, And we tell our children to look to the Lord much as we have and to wait for the day when suffering will end. It is not only Matthew chapter 27 that takes up this text and uses it, but the writer of Hebrews does this for us as well in Hebrews chapter 2. Turn with me, if you don't mind. The book of Hebrews was written to encourage Christians to hang on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to endure in their faith. And the only way that we can endure is by looking to Jesus, who has given us the good news and rescued us from sin and and meets our needs in the midst of difficult times. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we find the writer in this section talking about how that is possible. He says, but we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, that's Jesus, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. David said that in Psalm 22. The writer of Hebrews takes that up and says, Jesus did that too. And again, I will put my spirit, my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore, verse 14, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, you and me. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that means to take away God's wrath, for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We won't take time to turn there today. You can jot this down and take a look later, but that's why in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the fact that this world isn't right. It's suffering. In fact, he compares it to the pains of childbirth. This world's in agony. But there's a notion that redemption's coming. And it's true because Jesus came. So Psalm 22 prophetically tells of one who would come, who would suffer on our behalf, And he would do this so we could be pardoned and live forever. But the same psalm demonstrates to us that because Jesus suffered, we can trust him in the midst of our own suffering. And Hebrews chapter 2 proves that to us because he suffered for us. He He can sympathize with us. He who never knew sin took on flesh and took our sin upon him and understood the limitations of our flesh. And because now He is with the Father, He ministers to us. And so I say to you, as David prayed through this cycle of faith from agony to to joy, we too can take up this text. We don't just grin and bear it. We don't just hope that suffering will go away. We hope in Jesus in the midst of the suffering, knowing full well that more is to come. And this text clarifies to us that the redemption that Jesus brought to us on the cross through His suffering has implications not only for our pardon to take us from death to life, to take away the penalty of sin, but has clear implications for our present sufferings as well. Therefore, the good news, the gospel that we preach is for past Those of us who have been justified by faith, we have been saved. Jesus did that. But presently we suffer too. And certainly in the future we will suffer. And the sufferings of Jesus promise us that we'll make it through those as well until we come to the end and all suffering is done away with. So if you need to be pardoned for your sin today... Trust the one who would come that David prophesied about who would suffer on your behalf and take away your penalty. Trust him today. For those of you who already have, who are in the midst of suffering now, or maybe have come out of a recent cycle, or have a notion that another one's coming, look to Jesus who suffered for you. Redemption in the Bible always, without fail, 
comes through suffering. But we await a day when suffering will be no more, and we will gather around the Lamb as an eternal reminder that He rescued us by His sacrifice, by His suffering. And we will rejoice, and there will be no more pain, and no more tears, and no more pains of childbirth. But until then, we endure, looking to the One who meets our needs in the midst of our suffering. I don't know where you are in the cycle today. You might be toward the end of this text in the period of basic happiness. You might be at the beginning or the middle of the text, agonizing. But wherever you are today, whether you need pardon or whether you need help, Jesus is your only hope, and I call you to trust Him.